Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 2, and 12, 13 through 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sam. Well, um, again, it's good to see you this morning and glad you're here on this chilly morning as we uh, start a new series uh, today. And it's one that um, I'm really excited about and, and yet have some uh, thoughts about it. And I wonder if you've ever studied this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's an interesting book and um, it really... The title, uh, Ecclesiastes, is about the called ones, those who are gathered together. It's an assembly. And the person who wrote this, uh, which most people believe is Solomon, but it's still some ambiguity to it, uh, really identifies himself as the preacher, the one who brings those together. Even if it was Solomon, he's not wanting to identify himself as a king. He's wanting to identify himself as a teacher preacher, someone who wants to say, let me show you what life is really like. I've tried it. Let me tell you what it's about. But if you read the beginning of this, and there's been some uh, controversy about this book because it, it can be a little uh, cynical, right? Vanity, all vanity, it's all meaningless. You know, it's like... Okay, if, you want, if you're a glass half empty kind of person, this is your book. You know, that's like what you'd think. But that's not really what it, it, it is. But it is interesting is um, I've recently really, for some reason, gotten interested, I think um, just back interested in comedy um, and just the study of comics and, um, and watching, you know, documentaries and things like that. And uh, even listening to This American Life had, a, had this fascinating thing on a French, this famous French comic who came to America and like had to restudy and learn all of comedy and you hear his journey. Just kind of really interesting thinking about it. But there was an article I read some time ago called Hope in a Cynical Age that references a book called Shows About Nothing, Thomas Hibbs, obviously, uh, you know, playing off the Seinfeld idea of, uh, of comedy. But he says this, he gives a telling insight of the use of humor in many modern sitcoms, yet tinged with an edge of anger or frustration. He speaks of what's called the magisterial use of coincidence and the general sense of absurdity, meaninglessness, and pointlessness of almost all human effort or pursuits that's portrayed. I think it's interesting because the, the, the further you go into Amer specifically American comedy, there is this push on how do we make sense of life and how do we maybe are we entertaining ourselves to deny or numb ourselves to life are we looking into it you know all of the 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 uh, comedic things about just what's going on in the everyday you know what what's the deal with you know that kind of stuff um, but it's interesting though that what they're saying here about the the general absurdity that comedy is trying to tap into something to, to either provide meaning or numb us from it. It's a very old existential understanding of that. It's a, a fact that we live in a world where we're constantly trying to find meaning. We're constantly trying to find weight to our lives. Everything seems to fall through our fingers so easily. 
as if we're trying to hold water in our hands and even the tightest hands can't hold water. It continues to drip out. We cannot hold it. Things just continue to, to move out of our hands. But here's the problem. In, a, in such a cynical age that we live in, that you, you watch things on TV, you read in the papers, whether it's, it's, it's global, political, whatever it may be for you, that you go, it's just all meaningless. It's just, everything, there's, where, where is the excitement in it, right? We're looking for the next weekend. We're looking for the next purchase. We're looking for the next thing to make us feel like there's some sort of weight to this life, weight, heaviness, some sort of substance. But C.S. Lewis, I think, hit on it the best when he said this about being overly cynical. He said, but you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you've explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things, seeing through things, that what it means to be a cynic, to see through things that, oh man, that's great and all, but it has no meaning. You know, eventually, once you try and, and, and try and, put weight on something you can't, you see through it, you go, oh, I can't hold anything. He's, he's, he's saying this to us. He's saying, eventually, if you see through everything, you will see nothing. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the windows should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. But how if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. So what is it? What has weight? What has meaning? Vanity, vanity. This is how the preacher starts. Does that not sound like such a downer? <laughs> this is how he begins his sermon. And that's where he goes. So I think this is a, is a profound book for us because this book is so powerful in the way that it touches our 21st century world. There are so many themes that run through Ecclesiastes that touch the places and ways that we want to give meaning and yet we think we see through all of it. Or we give all of our meaning, all of our substance to one thing and it continually frustrates us. Where is the wisdom? How do we live this life? It's an intensely practical book for the ways that we try and live out this Christian life. What does it mean to actually be a person with meaning? So we're gonna look at two parts of this, just introduction on Ecclesiastes. We're gonna look at vanity and meaning, two simple things. What is vapor, vanity, and what holds weight? What has meaning, vanity and meaning? Very simple. You know, the words of the preacher as he begins, it looks a lot like Proverbs. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Proverbs. It's probably a little more familiar to you, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. The book of Proverbs has all those things like, don't, you know, talk to a fool according to his folly and, you know, all those kind of things, uh, which there is a lot of similarity to it. And even the author seems similar. And so this is why so many people think it's Solomon, not to mention it begins a, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Proverbs actually names Solomon as the author. Ecclesiastes doesn't. But here's where Proverbs and Ecclesiastes kind of differ. Proverbs is really general. It's like if you were going to kind of read a book. You know, if you're going to read a book on something that's helpful. Uh, Proverbs is somewhat like that. Proverbs was used, actually the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament was used to train young people in how to live life. It was almost like a handbook for that. Ecclesiastes is different. Here's what the difference is. 
It's the difference of an individual giving you their experience. Ecclesiastes is like sitting, instead of reading the book, it's sitting with the author and saying, tell me about you. And the preacher actually begins to unfold his experiences in a way that make you go, oh, you've actually done that? What was that like? You've actually experienced that? How did you experience that? It is a deeply empathetic book for us. It's a book that could cause you in your jobs, in your family, in your life, whether it's money, sex, or power, or whatever it is that you hold dear, those things, he actually says, look, I have experienced these things. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about what they're like. Let's talk about how they have weight or no weight at all. He doesn't throw everything out, and I think that's why people don't like this book. In fact, Ecclesiastes is considered by one commentator as the black sheep of the Bible, because in olden days, the rabbinic schools, the major schools of, of the rabbinic times, thought that this book, as they said, defiled the hands of the holy. They thought that this book was a little too raw, a little too, you know, your experiences are a little too much, a little too philosophical, and so it was avoided. Thus, I think even more so why it should be something that we study. And it was added to the Bible because of the deep, profound meaning at the beginning and end. You see, it begins with vanity, vanity, and it ends with what we'll hit on in a minute, the meaning of fearing God. What does it mean that it's all driving to something? It's pointing us to understand. See, that the true problem, the true issue of man's attempt to find meaning is to put all of the weight on creation without a creator. That's why he uses the word vapor or vanity here. See, in verse two, it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You think he says vanity enough. There's actually a translation of that word and it's actually very difficult to translate. And if you look at it, the translation, it fiddles out in a bunch of different synonyms in Hebrew. Some of which I wanted to draw out because they kind of group together. Because the teacher wants us to know something here. He wants us to know what does it really mean to try and live in vanity? What does vanity really mean? The word in, in Hebrew is hevel, and it's a really difficult, like I said, to define. But one meaning is brevity, unsubstantial emptiness. And, that, and that's where we get vapor, right? It's easy to think about, like when you walk outside, it's freezing cold, right? It's probably in the, maybe high in the 20s. I saw in the, the weather this week, it's supposed to be three, like the low is three, welcome to Nashville, you know? It's like, okay, three. In that, what do you do? You immediately see your breath. It's often the test for us, right? When we go outside, you see your breath. It's a simple thing, but it's amazing. You don't think about your breath until it's really cold and then you see it and you see it for a moment and it's gone. That's this first translation. It is this, it is this quick, quick brevity. It's this, this unsubstantial thing that you can't really grasp, you can't really hold, but you know it's there for a moment. You know it's attached to something meaningful, but it's there. It's a great picture of that. It's like when I, when I go to the beach, and I love this, every year with our kids, you sit on that portion right next to the shore where the water meets the sand, and you start to build a sandcastle. And some of the best sandcastles are when you get that wet sand, and you hold the sand when it's wet, and it drips out, and it kind of forms, and it dries, and it makes these like really cool layered towers, but it always eventually, when you do that, it can't sustain itself. And not to mention, the water comes up 
and nails it. And our kids are like, oh man, I just worked on that. You know, it's all that hard work and then it's gone. It's only for a moment. It can't sustain. That, that is the feeling. That is what it's trying to say. It's, it's like this. It's putting too much weight in that relationship that you think will give you everything that can't hold. If you put too much weight on someone, too much substance in a specific relationship on this earth, that person will be exhausted by you. If you try and get ultimate meaning from someone who is a part of creation, it doesn't mean we can't learn life and relationship from one another. That's not what this is about. But what vapor means is that all of us in this room are actually brief. The Bible compares us to grass that withers, compares us to things that fade, and yet we have meaning. But at the same time, if we put our ultimate worth, our ultimate substance on one another in, in those relationships, you've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it in a marriage, in a friendship, where somebody puts so much weight on you to make them feel like they are so important that you don't know how to make them feel important. And ultimately, the friendship can be very frustrated. I've seen many friendships, many marriages, where there's so much conflict based on that fact. That one of the people, it's not just neediness, it's the meaningfulness. And it can't hold. It's not sustainable. It can't do it. It's such a powerful part of this. Solomon is trying, or the preacher rather even, is trying to get to the, the, the heart of the matter. That we are putting weight where it cannot hold. Another way is unreliable. Another translation, frail, even deceitful. It's interesting, one of the translations here. It's a common designation, even this word vanity, to talk about idols in the Old Testament. Now, idols are not things that we typically talk about, but they're the things in our lives where we look to to make us something. It's something that we set up, that we worship. Now, it doesn't mean we're setting up little wooden things or we're saying, but they're the things in our lives that we center everything around. It could be your job, it could be a person. But it could be intangible things as well. It could be things like power. It could be things that, like that where you can't necessarily hold it, but you know that when you feel them, like you have the greatest identity is when you have all the power in your corner. That everyone around you, maybe it's affirmation. What is it? There are things that we bow to, but that same thing is, is even deceitful. It's saying, if you worship me, I'll hold you up. And yet it, it releases. It can't hold you. It's not worth it. It reminds me when I was really young, and I remember playing hide-and-go-seek at the house next door to us. It was being built. It was being constructed. And our, all of our neighbors on our block were doing it, and I, I went you know, I was hiding and along with so many others. I found the best hiding spot. Went up on the second story and it was kind of where they were about to build the stairs and they were about to close it in. It was this little nook. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is amazing. No one's gonna find me. And all of a sudden I felt my stomach go into my throat and I was falling off the second story, straight down. 
and I landed somehow on the wood, that huge piece of plywood I was sitting on landed flat, but the breath was completely knocked out of me. I was laying on the ground while all, the, all these other kids, basically, I can't remember if they were laughing or they said, we found you. Um, but I was in pain thinking that this sturdy structure would hold me and be a perfect place for us to do this game, and yet it couldn't at all. And this is a sweet illustration, a small illustration of the weight that we think we can put on to something that can hold us. What are the structures that we build that are deceitful to us? They are vanity. They are things that cannot hold ultimate meaning. Look, it could be a career. There are a lot of people here looking for a career, whether it's in music, whether it's in construction. It would be easy to try and put our weight in that, but isn't it frustrating to you, just like it is with all of us, to go back to your classroom, to your cubicle, to your recording studio, and know that once you've finished that great song, once you've finished that great work, once you've done that paper, you got another one coming. It comes right after that. And even if you're one of those people who are like, I work ahead, I'm really good at being ahead in my work. Even when you go, I've got this extra time, maybe you have extra time this weekend because there's a snow day, and you were snowed in, you're like, man, this is perfect for me cleaned out closets in the house. Maybe you're at home, got a lot of work done. You can always work ahead, but what happens? It comes back. We think that we can get ahead of it, but we can't. It's unreliable. And finally, the last one that I think is interesting in translation is the futility or fail, failing to satisfy. You know, the word futility, vanity, is actually this very word in Verse two, vanity of vanities, is the same word that Paul uses, the apostle Paul uses in a letter called Romans, one of the most famous letters in the New Testament. And he uses it in a chapter that's probably considered one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament, Romans chapter eight, verse 20. And he uses it to talk about how creation was subjected to futility. He's essentially saying that sin is all through creation. And the translation he uses, listen to this, it's saying that it was subjected to frustration. Vanity is meaning frustration or failure to satisfy. It means that creation is looking for beauty and yet it's elusive. Creation is longing to be beautified, to be redeemed and look beautiful again and yet it is elusive. It, can't, it keeps distancing itself every time. Does that not sound like like us? Doesn't that sound like the vapor, the things we're trying to, to hold on to? And yet we can't? The vanity of vanities, the, the ways we want to look beautiful, the ways we have resolutions to do so great, right, every year. And yet it feels like come February, that beauty is far from us. That goal of exercise, that goal of rest, that goal of work, all the things that we have looked for to give us some sort of satisfaction to find ourselves resting for once. About how we feel about us is so elusive. It's like a whisper and it's gone. That's the vapor. That is what he's talking about. 
Do you hear the de- definitions? Do you, do you feel it? It is something it can cause you if, you if you're not careful to read this book like the existential philosophers often talked about, like Albert Camus and say, what is the point of life? Why live if this is the point? Well, the preacher doesn't let us leave without understanding this. Not, we don't end with vanity. We end with meaning. He says, the whole end of the matter, the end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. Why fear God? How does that give us weight? I think this is one of the most important things for us to grasp. If we're gonna actually enjoy creation, see, it doesn't mean vanity, vanity, as if we were to look at everything in life and go, that's ridiculous. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to say, is that if you do that, if you go down that road and try and give meaning to these things, you will see through it. But there has to be some weight. There has to be some substance so we don't become these hopeless cynics. And it comes to fearing God. In fact, fearing God is almost like the motto in these books. It's almost like, the, it's almost like that's what you're supposed to do, fear God. Is when, but but the, 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 the interesting thing to me is when I read on this, one cultural kind of cr- critic said, we don't really fear God though. The problem is we don't understand what it means to fear God because we typically, God, he was asked, hey, what's your image? What do you think people's image of God is in our culture? And he said, a golden retriever. He said, we typically think of God as like a golden retriever. He's sweet. He's, he's there with us. He kind of goes along with us when we need him. Really kind, loyal, nice, friendly, pretty harmless. But this is saying, if you really want to make sense of life, you have to fear God. You have to actually embrace, what does it mean to fear him? And Ecclesiastes isn't saying this because it's just a religious book. It's saying, if you don't fear God and hear me, especially if you're here and you're either deeply cynical about Christianity or maybe you're exploring it again, the only way to make sense of wisdom in this world is to fear him, is the lenses through which you look to make sense of all of it. Because here's the, here's the kicker, vanity attaches to fear. And if the thing you fear is vapor, what are you left with? But if you fear the one who is unmoved, as Aristotle called the unmoved mover in his, in his view of the universe, even not as a Christian, he said there has to be something that is unmovable. Everything else is in flux. What is the one thing that is unmovable? The unmoved mover. Even he was saying there has to be something fixed. And the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is trying to tell us it has to be of God. There has to be a fear of the one who has set this in place. And we need to understand that fear and intimacy are not not detached. We've made this dichotomy between fear and intimacy. Let Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you, if, you, if you have intimacy without fear, what do you really have in a relationship with anybody? If you're in a relationship with somebody and there's not fear, it's just simply intimacy, where is the actual give and take of, do I hold this person up as valuable? Or is it merely for how I feel in terms of my closeness? See, there has to be fear and intimacy in a relationship. Otherwise, when do you really know when you've hurt the person and actually care? 
or vice versa. Fear has its connection to the way that we understand healthily in fear, things have a cost. There is meaning, there's weight to something. We're supposed to have weight to things. That's why we are afraid. That's why we do seek things wrongly though in creation to be the ultimate thing, but they are to have a weight. There's supposed to be substance in them. They're not all just vapor in terms of it in and of itself. But if we put the ultimate weight in it, that's true. But intimacy is without fear. You don't have a cost. You don't have real relationship. There's no, there's no true understanding of the person. Fear actually connects to knowledge. It's knowing and being known. See, anytime God talks about this with people in the Bible, to fear someone and to have fear in that relationship is to hold the deepest parts of that someone that you are so knowledgeable of and them of you that you think, man, they, they really have me. And they could now do anything they want with my heart. And that's what's scary about some relationships, isn't it? If you give yourself to them in terms of who you really are, you're afraid, what are they gonna do with me? Are they gonna hold me with care or are they gonna discard me? Are they gonna gossip about me? What fear does in terms of the Lord is to say, there is deep love and knowledge. See, but most of us not only just do intimacy without fear, which is why we make God a golden retriever, but we also do fear without intimacy. We can remove the fact that God is near. And this is why many of you in this room may actually live in a constant state of anger when it comes with God. A constant state of anger. Do you ever notice this? Are, are you, do you tend to be an irritable person? Do you find that maybe you live in a state of anger or irritability because you think that you're always being owed? This is the state of fear without intimacy. It's the fact that there needs to be a closeness, a relationship. You find that if I, do, if I live up, I need to do, I live like as it says, fear God and keep his commandments. I'm keeping them. But this is what the elder brother in the, in the, in the parable of the prodigal sons, the elder brother he feared, he feared his father. He did everything that his father said. And yet he was in such anger. This is why Jesus uses that parable to talk about the Pharisees. How much do we live out the commandments? How much do we do the things of coming to church, hearing, reading the Bible, praying, spending time coming to the table? And yet, where is our heart really? Does God interact with us simply on fear without intimacy? then what is the point of Jesus? Jesus is to show us both fear and life. You know why it says fear God and keep his commandments? It's to give us a clear view of reality. See, we tend to read this and go, keep his commandments. Okay, that means I need to do what he says and I'll be in relationship with him. Well, maybe, but over and over you see in the Bible, there are almost always people that do exactly what the commandments are and they have no intimacy or relationship with God at all. See, what it's saying here that's so important is that the commandments aren't about just doing and, and not doing. And that's what most of us think. The commandments, which is not just the 10 commandments, when he uses that language, he's encompassing all of the Old Testament. He's saying, he's saying, Doing this means you're in a relationship with God. That means you begin to shape your vision differently about his character and about how he's made the world. 
What helps you make sense of things? When you're in a, in a bad relationship or you're doing something in your job that you shouldn't be doing or you're in a, in a position where you are really going against what creation is, you're putting weight or meaning or substance in and ultimate worth in things that can't hold them. What turns you to the truth? It's when you see yourself in the mirror of what that thing is and that it actually can't. When you see yourself in the mirror and you say, I know I'm trying to put ultimate worth on this and it frees you, it makes you go, you know what? I can't put all of my weight on my job. I can't look to my children to give me ultimate meaning or I will exasperate them and I will have a horrible relationship with them. I can't look to those things to do that. So there has to be another way. There has to be a reordering. That's the commandments. The commandments show you life because so much fear distorts reality, doesn't it? If fear, isn't it what happens to us? Our fear and anxiety distorts the reality of what we live for day to day, everything we're afraid of, it, it pops up over and over and, and then we, we reorient our life around it. But if we fear God and keep his commandments, what is God doing? He's saying, let me show you ultimate meaning. Let me bring your vision back to the thing that does not change and yet knows you and loves you, that is me. And his commandments are him showing you that in writing. And just as you would in any healthy, good relationship, begin to reorient your life around someone who may ask things of you about your time, your money, all of it. Who may ask things of you only naturally to shape your life differently. That is what his commands are. Fear and life, fear and intimacy. Fear goes together with relationship with God. That is the only way we can understand it. And I'll tell you, I think that's why this table is so meaningful. This table in front of us is meaningful because of this. Because of the last thing that's said here, listen in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, fear doesn't just have to do with intimacy and who God is. And it doesn't just have to do with life and living out his commandments. It has to do with forgiveness. Fear and forgiveness go together. And this table is your illustration of that. If, if you were just to fear God in the way without intimacy, we wouldn't have a table at all. And if it was just intimacy without fear, then why should we even come to this table? But it's the fact that Jesus submitted himself in a place to give his body and blood for us so that we could make sense of this world, so that we could see ultimate meaning and know where we place it wrongly and where we should place it. It is in this table that you see that fear and forgiveness go together. It means you can't clean your heart. Vanity of vanity isn't for the ending. It is fear God, keep his commandments. Yes, one day there will be a judgment. This verse, I will tell you, if you did a word study on 
verse 14, it would just light up with a thousand verses from the Old and New Testament. You would see references all over the place and here's why. Because the ancients believed that at the end of your life, your heart would be weighed. It would literally be weighed with your deeds, your good, whether good, evil, whatever you're called in this life, it would be weighed. How would it be found weighty? How would you have substance? If only there would be one who would come and have his heart cut out for you. This one came, Jesus. He came to take his body, his own body and his own blood to give it for you so that when you are at the judgment and we will all sit before the judge and that will be Jesus, he will say, innocent. No matter how much is on your conscience, no matter how much you bring to this table and you go, I know I have a list, God, of so many things that I put my weight on and it is not you, you know what? You're still admitted to this table because it's not about how great you can handle the vanity. It's the fact that Jesus came. He came, took on the fear, and he brought you forgiveness. If you're here this morning, this table is for you, not because you're perfect at keeping his commandments, not because you can handle everything with meaning, not because you even perfectly you know, substitute the creator for creation. You come to this table only because the only person that can change your heart is the Lord Jesus. It's this Holy Spirit that comes into you and transforms you. It means there's fear and intimacy at this table. It means there is reality of you being known that when you drink his body and blood, you're saying, I know you, Jesus, and you know me. You're taking him in. You're feeding on him and saying, Jesus, I want you to know me in every part of it. Come to this table then. And if you're here this morning and maybe you don't, maybe you're thinking, this is great. I, I wanna think about this more. Don't come forward and, 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 and receive and take the body and blood as if you know him. Learn to know him before you come to the table. Isn't that what you would do in any relationship? Take the time to think about who he is and do so either by staying in your seat or coming forward, folding your hands and receiving prayer. But don't come forward and do that unless you really are saying you know him. There's a difference between knowing him and living in him perfectly. It's him living in you. Let's stand together now as we... We'll read our liturgy.